Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. My guest this episode is Russell Rogers. Russell Rogers was an important part of the Washington birding community for a decade or two. He got his master's degree uh, after uh, becoming a birder in South Carolina, getting his undergraduate degree in Philadelphia, moved out here to explore the Pacific Northwest, got his master's degree Evergreen College in Olympia, and went on to work for the Department of Fish and Wildlife, all the while being a very active birder in the state, one of the top birders here, and is well-known and well-beloved by many of our Washington birders. But, like many of us do, he moved after a fashion, went back to Philadelphia, where family called and has been working there since. During the last part of his time here in Washington, he resumed a childhood passion for beetle finding and beetle identification. And little did I know when Russell reached out to me to say that he knew Scott Downs from when Scott was young, because Scott had been someone that had gotten in touch with Russell as a sort of mentor on a bird banding uh, station, and that he enjoyed hearing from Scott. And I said, well, Russell, I haven't seen you in years. Why don't you be on the podcast? And he said, well, I don't know, Ed. I'm pretty much into Beatles now. I haven't been doing a whole lot of birding. Well, I said I thought we could make it work, and I think we did. We talked some birding, and then you'll learn about beetles. Beetles are cool. They are a special type of bug. You'll hear all about them. And help me welcome Russell Rogers to the Bird Banner Podcast. Russell, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being on with me today. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's cool. I first met you on a Seattle Audubon Society uh, winter field trip to North Central Washington, the Okanagan. It's my first time ever going there. And it was really the first few years those trips were becoming more popular. And uh, after that trip, uh, our Tacoma group started doing them on a regular basis. And uh, it was really cool. So thanks for getting me going on that. Oh, good. Yeah, I remember that trip. So uh, it was with Gene Hahn. It was. And um, uh, yeah, I had a great time as well. So Yeah, I was blown away. You were the driver in my van. And uh, the, the thing most memorable about that trip, except how long the days were. Oh, my goodness. Except for that, uh, the, the food where you guys got those tables out from under the van and set up this, uh, you know, deli sort of spread for lunch. I was like, oh my goodness, not even a pack. <laughs> Why do you have to pack a lunch on this? And secondly, the way you picked pygmy owls out of the trees, at like impossible distances. I was just uh, boggled. Oh, well, <laughs> I don't know how that happens. So yeah. I've always had great luck with pygmy owls for some reason. I don't know why, but yeah. um now, if we were looking for uh, uh, rosy finches, it would have been a different outcome. I uh, yeah, not as lucky with those. Yeah, well, that works. You know, we all have our things that are easier for us. So, Russell, tell me, I know that you're into beetles now, and we'll get to that because I'm excited about to learn a little bit about beetles. But tell me your birding story. How did you start in birding and about your time in Washington? Oh, sure. Well, um, I've been a lifelong birder, uh, literally. I don't have any memory of ever starting birding. Um, when I was in first grade, you know, a very young child, I'd sit by the window and draw pictures of birds at our feeder. And my parents bought me one of those little golden guides, you know, golden guide to the mm-hmm. common birds in North America. Sure. And um, I started underlining all the birds that I saw. I guess when I was around 13, I got a the golden guide, you know, Chandler Robin, Chandler Robbins guide to North American birds. And I was like, wow, this is 
a lot more birds out there than I thought. So um, when I got that, I realized people wrote down places and dates. So I started over. So my, um, my, my life list goes back to 1976 when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, um, but yeah, I know like, um, Roger Torrey Peterson has a story of where he saw a flicker and he was taken with the colors and, uh, he got hooked on burning. I, I don't have a moment like that. I, it's just always been a part of my life. And, um, uh, the same with, uh, with beetles and wildflowers. Um, again, when I was 13, I had a wildflower garden in my backyard in South Carolina, probably weren't too many 13 year olds that, that did that. Uh, um, the, I know uh, about that same age, I, I wanted to identify every plant in my yard and the common wildflower book that I had didn't have the grasses and trees in it. So I forced my parents to take me to the local bookstore to find something that would help. And they were showing me all these, you know, picture books of trees and grasses. But then I saw the floor of the Carolinas sitting on the top shelf and I said, dad that's the one i want and um uh yeah it took years but i did figure out all the plants that were in our yard um so uh and i also started a beetle collection about 14 years old so oh my goodness oh my um, goodness you have you've been uh, pretty much an eclectic naturalist from the get-go yeah it's uh um i like i like it all and uh the birds have always been on the four burner so um uh, when I, when other kids wanted to be a trash truck driver or a fireman, I wanted to be a doctor of ornithology. And, um, uh, as I was talking to you earlier about some of my learning disabilities, I had real trouble in high school, uh, and my doctor of ornithology never really came through. Um, I ended up going to art school, which was plan B and, um, uh, yeah, after that, I uh, started a painting business, um, and I would throw in bird trips uh, in between painting jobs. I, I led bird tours. Uh, I just scheduled in a bird tour around house painting jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a little bit later in life, in my mid-30s, I figured out exactly what my learning disabilities were, and there was treatments for it. I uh, started taking drugs. And immediately went back to grad school and got my uh, master's in environmental studies at Evergreen. Uh, And I did my uh, thesis work on the street corn lark. Um, And um, yeah, it's all, (laughs) that's kind of the history in a nutshell for me. The street corn lark continues to be a a popular subject of research and conservation here in the Puget Sound area. I know Joint Base Lewis-McChord has a big program going. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, I was the first person to to take a look at those since um, Bowles and Dawson and Bowles from the early 1900s. Um, wow! Um, I uh, had you know heard that they were probably not doing well. I talked to uh, Alan. Um, gosh, I forget his name. I mean, people down in Oregon who were starting to have interest in these birds, and I, I thought, well, that's that's something I could uh, uh, focus on in grad school and maybe help get things rolling. Um, uh, I did a status review for the um, 
you know, for to see if it would be protected by the Endangered Species Act. Um, at the time, the Fish and Wildlife Service couldn't dedicate couldn't dedicate um, personnel to doing that. So I said, "Well, I'm a grad student. I got all the time in the world." So, um, so I did the um, you know the, the literature review and, the, um, and compiled all the information I could about it. Did surveys for it, um, and uh, the uh, research I did was uh, looking at the microhabitat of um, their feeding, you know, the, their foraging areas within their um, home range. Um, so, I, you know, when I did that, other people started to, to get interest in it. The um, Department of Fish and Wildlife uh, uh, for Washington State. Um, started to have a lot of interest in it and just kind of snowballed from there. So, um, yeah, that's a bird that's dear to my heart. Wow. Good for you. you. So you were here. How long were you in Washington? Evergreen obviously is here. Did you come out for grad school or did you come out before that? I came out because I always wanted to live in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I don't know why it was just, uh, it just seemed like an exotic place to me, you know, growing up in South Carolina, it was uh, a place so far away, had fish jumping everywhere, there bears and, you know, wildlife. And, uh, and I just always wanted to go there. Um, uh, my, my wife and I had planned to stay there for five years and maybe move on. And, mm-hmm. um, and before you know what, 20 years had passed and, uh, <laughs> uh, I thought I'd be there for the rest of my life, but um, uh, I went to undergraduate school in Philadelphia at Temple University, mm-hmm. and Philly has a way of grabbing you by the collar and pulling you back eventually, and that's what happened to us. So, okay. uh, but I came to Washington in, in um, 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, my my wife was a school teacher, so we we thought she would probably find a job, but we had no plan whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just loaded up the wagon and headed west. And um, um, yeah, we I just... it was a great trip. Oh, it was awesome. <laughs> so, but yeah, and um, I, I started Evergreen in, um, oh, was it 1996? Mm-hmm. Uh, finished, I took the, the long route for my two-year uh, master's degree. I, it ended up taking four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a southerner, so I don't do anything fast. Um, and then uh, right after I, I got my degree, I started working uh, full time at the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first job I got there, um, uh, you know, with all my bird background, that naturally led to a position with shellfish diseases, pests and predators. Again, I, I don't know how these things happen. I actually asked my supervisor if he read my resume <laughs> after he hired me because uh, he, he must have been mistaken because <laughs> I, I had no experience with shellfish diseases and pests uh, uh, or shellfish aquaculture for that matter. But um, uh, um, government, work, you know, government work, not necessarily <laughs> all uh, with a, a logic behind it. Well, you know, I have to say, um, um, being a marine ecologist, essentially, for 10 years, um, I think maybe a better, well-rounded ecologist in general, because I never, 
like when I worked with Prairie Systems, um, I never thought about the physical um, uh, pressures that were put on the systems. Like what did the wind, the constant wind, uh, how would rain affect that? And, you know, in a marine environment, it's nothing but physical. Uh, you know, there's waves and tides and, and you know, it's um, physical forces drive the show there. And, and I, I never really thought about terrestrial systems that way. And uh, I think, uh, you know, now I look at, 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 at all that differently, having done marine ecology for 11 years. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a gift um, uh, to be able to do that. So That's a good attitude. That really uh, helps when you can find that sort of uh, approach to potentially problematic uh, situations. So good for you. Oh, yeah. Good. Uh, and you were pretty active in uh, Seattle Audubon and the whole birding community out here. I know uh, Bruce Labar says hello. I told him uh, I went oh. birding with Bruce this morning, and he told me that you would. Uh, yeah, yeah, he knew you pretty well. And uh, oh and yes, I should make sure I said hello. So we we got our first of the year uh, blue wing teal this morning. So oh, congratulations! Uh, <laughs> yeah, I follow all the birds that Bruce posts on uh, Facebook, and um, that makes me a little homesick, but. Uh, <laughs> you've, got some, you've got some good birding down there too migration just that came through uh yeah um uh we we had a um a few weeks ago uh um a classic uh spring fallout um of warblers in my yard um you know, I spent an entire season at Cape May when I lived here back in the eighties and never once saw a fallout. Mm -hmm. Um, and overnight here, um, we had a cold front move through mm -hmm. and then that's morning, there were hundreds of, uh, uh, yellow rump warblers in my yard. Uh, I, I estimated in about an hour period that four to 500 must've passed through the front yard through wow. the big spruce tree I have and flew across the street into some, more uh, spruces there um but there's also uh, if i can remember them all um uh bay-breasted blackburnian um cape may black and white magnolia northern perula yellow warbler um black-throated green um black-throated blue we're all in my yard with in, in an hour's time uh, and i know i'm getting we don't have that uh, problem of not remembering what was we saw <laughs> here at all. Yeah, and no, I'd be about twice what you'd get on the, in a good year list in Washington. But um, yeah, it was amazing. I um, uh, like I said, I, I haven't grown up on the East Coast. I never saw that type of thing very often, and this was a uh, um, yeah, just a classic fallout of warblers. It was pretty neat. Uh, also got a couple of yard birds. I got a northern or a um, eastern kingbird was a yard bird that same day, but the, the best warbler of all was a common loon that flew over the house. Uh, <laughs> very unexpected yard bird. Yeah, they happen, but inland sightings are not that easy at all. So, but yeah, that was uh, pretty special. So Russell, did you move back uh, to the Southeast specifically for a job uh, involving beetles or how did, how did that uh, interest resurface and come to the forefront? Well, um, when I was working at, it was, I worked at Point Whitney, um, which is out on the Hood Canal for the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, 
um, when I was working with shellfish. And uh, I, one of the things I did there was I started collecting beetles again. Uh, I also collected um, uh, parasitic flies of birds and mammals as a wildlife fish and wildlife biologist in the Department of Fish and Wildlife. I had uh, a lot of people and you know, a lot of good access to birds and mammals so I could collect these things. So, um, uh, so I actually started um, collecting beetles again, just out of my own interest, along with the flies that I was uh, picking up there. Uh, we moved back to be with family. Um, okay. My, uh, we had a death in the family and we, we moved back to, to take care of my, uh, my wife's dad. Okay. And um, just like when I went to Washington, I, I had no idea when I came back, what I was going to do. Um, Philadelphia has a real shortage of fish and wildlife jobs. Um, there's not very many. Um, and uh, I, I looked for work for a good two years before I found a position at um, U.S. Customs. Um, I'm an agriculture specialist, uh, and I um, check all the the commodities that come in on cargo ships uh, uh, for agricultural pests, um, beetles, um, uh, you know, uh, harmful moths and things like that. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I tell people it's a job I've been training for since I was eight. You know, uh, I get to crawl around on my knees, uh, even though my knees hurt a little now, but <laughs> I can crawl around on my knees and look for bugs all day. It's, it's, it's not bad. Very cool. And so a lot of the, the uh, uh, you know, field trips you take are more, uh, more for your interest and passion than for occupation, or do you have side gigs? Uh, no, the, um, the field trips and stuff I do with beetles these days is for a side project I'm working on, which is called uh, Commonwealth Coleoptera. And I'm trying to catalog all the beetles that are known to occur in the state of Pennsylvania. Wow. Um, and uh, um, I, I sent you a, a, some documents. I don't know if you got a chance to look at them, but I've seen those yet. Sorry. But um, uh, yeah, there's uh, uh, basically I'm, I'm trying to find as, as many records and documented occurrences of, of beetle species either through literature or looking in museum collections or going out into the field and collecting them myself. Mm -hmm. um, about every time I go out and collect beetles, I usually come back with a handful of beetles that aren't known to occur here. So, or haven't been known to occur in the state. So well, there, there's a there, lot. Aren't beetles like, if not the biggest, one of the biggest uh, families of organisms in the world? It is. It's the largest order of insects. Uh, there's somewhere in the ballpark of 600,000 species. Oh, my goodness. Um, not all of them are in Pennsylvania, thank goodness. But <laughs> uh, I estimate I haven't completed the, the list yet, but my official list has about 2,000 beetles. Uh, I've gone through about, yeah, I forget, 25 or so families where I've... Um, gotten that I mean I still have about half the well there's 113 families known to occur in Pennsylvania and I've gone through about 
25, but two of those families are the biggest, uh, which would be ground beetles and rove beetles. Um, between the two of those, there's probably 1,200 species, uh, the, by far the largest families we have. So wow. I hope it gets a little easier after that. So, so I, I was going to say, too, um, uh, one reason I got back to, to doing insects over birds and, and how this is how uh, beetles won out over birds is when um, I had my, my first child. Um, uh, it takes a lot of what uh, is called marital capital to get up early, leave the house, leave your wife with a child for the day while you go out and chase birds around. Um, I, I learned real quick that I could collect beetles whatever came to my, you know, back porch light at night, put them on a pin, come back weeks later, months later, years later, and work on identifying them. Uh, it was much more flexible with young kids. Yeah. Um, whereas you really have to dedicate a lot of time away from home to, to bird like I was doing before, before kids. So yeah. that's, that's how I got um, really back into doing insects kind of full time. And, uh, now that the kids are, are older. Uh, I'm just so hooked on beetles and all of their diversity. And, uh, they're absolutely beautiful things to look at under a microscope. I can literally do that all day. So very cool. So help listeners understand. I know that I, I did, you know, 10 minutes on Wikipedia before we talk. So I know that beetles are a huge family and that their forewings form some strange word that forms a casing around their body or something. Tell me what's a beetle and how do you tell one beetle from another? Uh, well, um, they're an insect, six legs. And you're right, the, the, the forewings are uh, usually hard um, uh, and cover the rest of the body. Those, that's the elytra. Um, and uh, that's what makes a beetle a beetle is the elytra. There are a few exceptions. There are some uh, beetles that, that when they reach adulthood stay in a larval form. Uh, a lot of those tend to be like um, uh, beetles found in caves, you know, troglodytic um, species. Um, I guess when they, there's just so few predators in a the cave, they get to the adult stage, they just say, ah, to heck with it. And they stay, stay a, in larval form. Um, but uh, yeah, but by far and away, most of them have that hard uh, covering, uh, which is the four wings. Um, and then their variation beyond that is almost endless. You big ones and little ones and um, you know, ones with long heads, short beetles. And, and then if you can conjure it up in your head, there's probably a beetle that would fit whatever you can think of. Um, it's, it's just endless, the, 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 um, the, the variety that you, you have with them. It's, um, uh, I never get tired of looking at them. So. Very cool. I know that some of them have fabulous colors and bizarre shapes. They look like a, you know, something. I, I think that when the superhero people come up with their ideas, they may get some of the inspiration from Beatles, you know, some of the pictures. Oh, yeah, easily. So, But, um, yeah, they, uh, some of them are metallic. They look like they were made out of uh, polished metal. Some of them look like um, 
they're made from fur, you know, they covered with uh, hair like structures that um, uh, everything in between uh, every color, every shape. Um, um, they're found in just about every habitat that you can think of with the exception of uh, uh, the oceans. The oceans don't have any insects. Mm -hmm. um, you get some beetles that hug the shore, uh, you know, um, might actually come into contact with salt water, but that's about it. Uh, um, they're mostly... They get on ships to give you a job too, huh? <laughs> that's true. So yeah, the ships have lights and that uh, uh, they, they tend to lose their mind over that. So <laughs> Yeah, uh, like a lot of insects do. Very cool. Uh, so you are a top beetle guy now. Uh, if, a, if a kid or someone wanted to to kind of learn about beetles or, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, how would you direct them? How would they find like-minded people? Are there things like the Audubon Society or birding clubs for beetles or how? Um, there, there are, it's not quite as, not quite the same as it is with birds. Uh, um, actually, do most of everything I do solitary. I'm a hermit. Uh, my wife says I spend way too much time down in the basement by myself, but um, yeah, most of it that I do is completely alone. Um, and I find it meditative too. It's uh, that's one of the things I enjoy about it. Uh, uh, but that said, um, there are um, uh groups usually associated with like nature centers or, or museums that have like uh, uh, bug uh, clubs for kids. Um, yeah. And you just, you go out and do what kids do, turn over rocks, turn over logs, um, see what's in the dirt, you know, go crawling through the Creek. Uh, all those things um, is where you find, uh, where you find beetles. Um and uh, uh, yeah, you just, you start putting them in jars and you, you, then before you know it, you're going to want to know what they are. So you'll, you'll get a book and start looking uh, and it just blossoms from there. Uh, I will say one thing that's made um, uh, entomology um, so much more accessible than it was 20 years ago is the internet. There's a, a website called bug, bugguide.net. And on it, they have all the arthropods for North America, spiders, um, scorpions, all the insects, you know, butterflies, beetles, flies, you name it. It's all on there. And it's all photographs that people take, put on there. Uh, there's usually experts, um, that are associated with the site that can help identify the things. So essentially what this site has become is a reference collection for those who don't have access to a big museum collection of insects. Because in my younger days, I might key something out and I think I've got it. I'll take it to a museum. I'll pull that specimen or that species out of a drawer and I'll look at mine. It'll be red and the ones that, um, the museum have will be blue. I'm like, well, I went wrong somewhere, <laughs> you know, uh, but with, with bug guide, you can actually, uh, um, it, it, it's, 
it becomes your reference collection in that way. You don't necessarily have to have that reference collection like he did in the good old days. Um, and that's been a great, that's just the best thing since sliced toast when it comes probably to entomology. Have an app now. <laughs> There's probably an app for that now. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's something to work on. So. <laughs> uh, but it really is a, 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 a great advance. Uh, and uh, just about every genus, every family, well, every family for sure uh, is covered as far as beetles. Uh, just about every genus is has uh, some representative, and most of the genus uh, of beetles have all the species of beetles that wow. occur there. Well, that's uh, a seriously big site. It, it's awesome. So, uh, yeah, and I'm a contributing editor there, so I can contribute uh, um things that I find and, and do determinations on and I can add it to the site as well. And Very um, nice. yeah, it's, it's not bad. So they have range maps and that sort of thing there or descriptions of where they're found and all that kind of thing. Well, it's kind of like a Wikipedia for, for beetles. It depends on um, it's all volunteer. Uh, uh, when I add something to the site, I usually will try to add um that type of information, um, where it's found, what the range might be. Um, some things are done better than others, but it's, it just depends on who, you know, the energy of, of those who put it on there, you know, as to what gets, how much information gets eventually put there. So. I'm guessing that, uh, you know, in beetles and insects in general are just less conspicuous than birds are. I mean, in general, not always, sometimes they're very conspicuous, uh, but a lot of them, they hide under rocks they're and they're little and a lot of them are, you know, hide by their very nature. And so uh, they're just not something that uh, a person who doesn't have a specific interest in finding them would necessarily come across. That's true. Uh, and I use a lot of different methods uh, for drawing those uh, puppies out of the woodwork. Uh, um, like when I go on a camping trip to somewhere in Pennsylvania, I use, I'll usually take with me, um, pitfall traps. I have a malaise trap, which is a big tent like trap that, uh, flying insects will fly into. And their tendency when they hit the, the wall is to fly up and they fly up into the top of this tent and there's a collection jar at the top they go into. Um, I'll also take with me, a. uh, ultraviolet light trap for at night. Uh, I have a mercury vapor light that I use uh, as well. Um, I have um, beat sheets where I can go beat the vegetation and I have an aspirator that I can, uh, it's a little bug vacuum cleaner essentially that I can suck up all the small bugs with. Uh, <laughs> it, it's endless. And, <laughs> and I look like a complete dork when I'm doing oh, that because I'll have the, I'll have probably goggles on and I'll have my aspirator and then I'll have knee pads. Um, and then I'll have a vest with all the little vials and stuff. It's, it's, uh, I think it's pretty embarrassing for the rest of the family, but you know, I'm at the age where even I don't worse, really even worse than binoculars. <laughs> oh yeah. So yeah, no, it's a, you can, um, you can spend a lot of money on entomology, uh, 
collections and uh, all the collection equipment, the drawers that I use are, you know, they're wooden with glass tops. Um, I have, uh, see my collections, uh, 80, I have 80 Cornell drawers. So there's 80, um, I forget what their dimension is, 15 and a half by 18 inches. Um, and they're full of beetles, mostly from Southeast Pennsylvania. Um, so have a, as far as I know, it's one of the largest collections for this region. Um, I have about 30,000 uh, specimens that are um, curated, which means if I've looked at them and identified them as far as I can take them. Right. Um, so so uh, there's a, there are, it's not uncommon to have a, a beetle that you can get down to maybe to genus, but can't tell a species even with a microscope and having it in hand. Um, yes, that's true. There are, uh, some families, it's just impossible. Um, lightning bug, you know, um, lightning beetles, uh, lightning bugs, uh, they're, uh, get those a genus for the most part. There's a few that you can reliably identify the species, but, um, yeah, if you look up in a reference book, it'll say, you know, there's, 48 species for North America with at least 50 more that aren't described, <laughs> you know, and what do you do with that? Well, you just, uh, not much. So yeah, even the experts on, on, uh, lightning bugs, uh, have a real difficult time telling them apart. But one of the things I really enjoy, and it was just true with birds as well. I always enjoyed the birds that were the most difficult, you know, like identifying seabirds or all the various plumages of gulls. And it's the same with beetles. I enjoy the, the families that are really difficult. Uh, and one family in particular is um, the Staphylinidae, which is rove beetles. They're, um, they're the largest family uh, in North America and certainly within Pennsylvania. Um, uh, there's, I've, catalog what 645 or so of those uh every time i go out i usually find a few more new ones i'm gonna interrupt a rove beetle what the heck is a rove beetle is it a big beetle or a little beetle they well most of them are minute like two millimeters um three millimeters and what's difficult about them is uh to kind of safely identify most of them you have to dissect the abdomen and find the genitalia which is uh, skeletalized you you can clear it with uh, potassium um, hydro, uh, hydroxide you mount that on a micro slide uh, and then hope for the best uh, um, it's really difficult it's time consuming and I could, and I love doing it. So <laughs> you are yeah, they're, they're impossibly small. You're strange in that way. I have to say that sounds <laughs> like torture to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it would be for most people, but uh, I love it. So well, thank goodness somebody does uh, uh, furthering the uh, furthering the status of uh, that biological uh, field of study. So that's yeah. super cool. But the rewards for that are, are big. Um, I've got um, in, the in the last year, I've added uh, almost 30 new species to Pennsylvania's list. Um, uh, 
I probably have two or three undescribed species in my collection that um, I'm going to pass on to um, taxonomists who can go ahead and describe them and get them in, you know, known to science. Um, you can't do that. That doesn't happen with birds. That's pretty exciting. Uh, not, not, uh, not, not in most people's lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and also, yeah, I've, um, uh, besides the state records, I've had, uh, probably the most surprising one was, uh, right on my front porch. I had, a uh, it was a scarab beetle. Um, it, uh, I was pretty sure it was in this one genus, Maladera, and um, there should be one species of Maladera in North America, which is uh, Maladera castanea. Um, and as that name implies, it would be a brown beetle. Castanea means uh, you know brown. Um, the one I had was was black. I was like, well, that's not something's not right here. So I I um, sent some specimens off to a, a expert in North American scarabs. And as it turns out, the one I had was Maladera hyponica. And it was the first uh, record for that species in North America. And my front porch was the only place you could find them for a couple of years. Um, since then, I found a few other places in Southeast Pennsylvania where they've popped up. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, um, uh, room for new discoveries. Uh, so, with, so for a for a be, I, I, I ignorance talking here. Uh, insects. I'm assuming they're male and female beetles, and it would take a pair of beetles to start a colony. Yes. And, and so, how would would those blow in on a hurricane or come in on somebody's uh, luggage, or how would well a pair of beetles like that get to Pennsylvania? That's a good question, and I'm not exactly sure how these might have gotten here uh since i work for customs and i kind of uh yeah I, I hate to say it, it's probably someone was asleep at the border there that you know uh they just slipped through maybe on a um a vessel that came here from asia um and then crawled were, up your pant leg and came to your front porch you think <laughs> uh, yeah i don't know uh um it's the same with um you know, spotted lanternfly we have here is uh, is a horrible pest, but um, they're from Asia. They showed up in uh, Bucks County here in Pennsylvania, and we're not really sure how they got here. Um, it's the same with this beetle. I, I don't know how I got here. I know that they like uh, um, reproducing and and. They, the, I find their grubs in the roots of my rhododendrons out in front of my house. Um, but yeah, I have no idea how they got here. Uh, uh, certainly through commerce somewhere, uh, it was human activities of some sort. Um, sometimes you can figure these things out. There's um, a, a beetle that's um, an invasive species out in Washington, Oregon. It's a, um, called a gazelle beetle. Uh, it's in the uh, Carabidae, which is ground beetles. Um, I read a paper about these beetles in, in Washington, Oregon, and they, they theorized that they came into the United States through the potted plant industry from Europe. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that there is no potted plant industry from Europe. That couldn't be 
how that happened, but I do know that um, giant, these containers of peat moss that come from Scotland have these beetles in it. And the peat moss is used as a substrate for mushroom farming. Um, and I know for a fact the Willamette Valley and places like uh, down in, in, in Olympia have mushroom farms. They use the same peat moss. That's got to be how those, those beetles got there. So I wrote to authors and told them that I think this is probably how that happened. And um, so, yeah, sometimes it, it might be a little easier to figure out or come up with a more plausible solution. So, um, so give me some uh, uh, beetle tidbit facts that would interest birders. Uh, are beetles a big, okay. uh, are they a food source for a lot of birds? Are they pests for birds? How, how would birders, why yes. would give a damn about a beetle? Uh, well, um, woodpeckers. Woodpeckers eat a lot of beetle larvae. Your longhorn beetles, uh, uh, your, your brupested beetles, uh, the um, jewel beetles that um, uh, kind of mine under the bark of trees, uh, the scolited uh, beetles that uh, um, would be in, uh, under the bark of trees. All those, the larvae for all those beetles are, are larvae that feed a lot of baby woodpeckers. Okay. Uh, that's uh, probably a large percentage of what they they feed on. Okay. So, yeah, they're a big uh, contributor to the food web. I know that I know the beetles are important in the breakdown of dead trees. Uh, you know, I, I, there's I, I think when you see those roots with all these crazy swarmy sort of looks of uh, holes all through them, that's some kind of special beetle that does that. It's, it's, I, I, it has a cool name like the the old growth. I, I can't remember. I, somebody told me about it one time or other. No? Okay. Oh. But yeah, they're a, a, a major contributor to the decomp decomposition of your forest. They they recycle the old stuff and, and bring in the new. Sure. Uh, sure. I always say that, you know, when um, uh, I'll just say when feces happens out in the woods, some beetles likely to eat it. And uh, uh, whether it's uh, from an animal's rear or a dead tree or whatever, a beetle will probably consume it, <laughs> turn it into mulch. Yeah. Are, they, are, they, are those just any old beetle? Or are they, I know there are dung beetles in the, in the tropics. So they, are there, they're all over. Oh yeah. Uh, well, we have dung beetles throughout North America. Um, uh, rove beetles, actually the ones I was talking about earlier, um, oh. play a big part in, um, uh, detritus, um, feeding, um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of a uh, lot of family of flam yeah, families of beetles that would uh, contribute to um, to that you know, kind of segment of ecology there. So, so you spent a lot of time uh, in the field uh, looking. Uh, I'm sure you stumble across some pretty good birds doing that. Uh, yeah, I I, um, I don't plan my trips without birds in mind. Uh, uh, for instance, that, um, when I was driving out to Washington back in 92, I stopped, uh, it was in the spring of 92. I stopped at Crane, uh, uh, was it, uh, Crane Creek uh, State Park in Ohio, along the Lake Erie there. 
Um, and uh, I met a, a birder friend from South Carolina there. And as we were walking along the boardwalk, we ran into this fellow. His name was Harold Mayfield. Harold Mayfield was a past president of the AOU, um, the American Ornithologist Union. And we're like, my goodness, let's stop and talk to him. So um, as we were talking to him, we're looking out over this uh, patch of jewel weed. And then this patch of jewel weed is my lifer morning warbler. Uh, we saw three morning warblers there while we were talking to Harold Mayfield. It was a special, a very special moment for me. Yeah. I haven't seen a morning warbler since. <laughs> it's uh, morning warblers nest in Pennsylvania. And um, uh, the next four weekends, um, my beetle trips are you know, roughly uh, planned out to where morning warblers should be nesting. And uh, if I don't, if I don't see a morning warbler in the next month, I'm just going to, I don't know what to do. <laughs> it's like your odds are going to be improved by being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Uh, golden wing warbler is another one that's like that. We, we, they nest here. There's no reason why I can't find one um, within the next month. So yeah, morning warblers and golden wing warblers are, um, yeah. <laughs> now, do, do, uh, uh, beetle people use iNaturalist or a, or an online listing app like that or not? Um, a lot do. I don't. Um, I uh, um, I try to document my my uh, all of mine with specimens. I, I need to have a voucher spec specimen. You, you still need to have a, a voucher specimen for um, definitive. Uh, you know, if you say a, a beetle occurs in a certain county, you need to have that, <laughs> have it on a pen. And, and uh, so I, I try to collect uh, um, beetles in all the locations I go. And I always, I usually collect way more than I would keep in my personal collection. I usually end up donating anywhere between three and 5,000 specimens to the Academy of Natural Sciences here uh, for their research collection. Uh, and that's, that's what I do. Um, so, and I have a database on my computer that I, I load all that information in because it's the, the label data that I'm interested in the location sure. where these things were found and, and whatnot. And that's what I need for my catalog. Sure. So, um, well, very cool, Russell. I have learned more about beetles than I ever thought I would. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, Russell, uh, so I, I try to give uh, my guests an opportunity to uh, give a shout out to a cause they might be interested in. Is there uh, any uh, cause you want people to know about? Oh, well, um, um, I'm always uh, have a special place for for kids that have dyslexia and ADD, like I did. Um, never, uh, uh, when I was growing up, you know, I was always told I just didn't apply myself and, you know, this, that, and the other. And uh, um, I would just want those kids to know that it's, uh, don't let that get you down. <laughs> it's not a, it's your superpower. Uh, and uh, it's worked out well for me. I overcame all those problems and, um, yeah, it can be done, uh, and you can, uh, live a pretty happy life, uh, 
uh, you know, despite it all. Good for, and, you. Um, Good for you. Thanks for that shout out. Uh, my daughter has dyslexia, so I have a, a, a feel for some of the challenges that can present. Very good. Thanks for that. Uh, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, Russell, what's the best way? How would you? How would people reach out to you? Oh well, I'll be at Key Keystone State Park next weekend. So <laughs> oh, that, yeah. just go to Keystone State Park. Yeah. That's right, Russell. Where are you? Yes. Uh, oh. No. Uh, well, email is a great way. Still, uh, my email address is president at olipen.com. So O-L-Y-P-E-N.com. That's still my address from Washington. Okay. From, uh, from when I lived in Squim. Okay. So. Well, I, I will uh, uh, put that in the podcast notes so anyone who wants to can get a hold of you. I know a whole lot of Washington birders say hello. Uh, oh, and, uh, I miss it terribly. So. Yeah, I will let them know that uh, they can hear your voice if they want to. Nice talking to you, Russell. Thank you so much oh. for being on today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. So. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that may be more than you ever wanted to know about Beatles, but Russell's a fun guy to talk to. Nice to catch up with him again after all these years, and I hope Washington Birders enjoy hearing his Southern drawl on this episode. So help me reach out to Russell and say thanks, and until next time, good birding, good day.